0: I've been telling you about steel products for a long, long time. Love steel products. And uh, I'm sure you know them well at this point also. STIHL, they make the finest products to help your yard look the absolute best it can. Whether it's blowers or mowers or chainsaws or trimmers, they have it all. And they literally are the best in the business. Professionals use them. Amateurs like uh, us use them as well. They're long-lasting. Most are made right here in the USA. Big battery-powered operated guy because uh, it's simple, it's easy, it's not messy, and the charges on all of their products last forever. And it's the way to go. And as I've told you on many occasions, I have uh, many different products of theirs from blowers to hand trimmers to uh, larger trimmers, chainsaws. They have everything that you could absolutely ever need. Go to SteelUSA.com. Look at all of their products. SteelDealers.com. Again, it's S-T-I-H-L. And you'll find a, a dealer right around the corner from you because there's more than 10,000 around the country. And they always have good deals going as well. So check them out. It's STIHL, steeldealers.com, steelusa.com. This week on the Drew Goodman Podcast, the Rockies make some moves. A team that is rebuilding. Broncos head coach Sean Payton puts his foot in his mouth. It was not only unnecessary, it was
1: classless. The CU Buffs. They're heading back to the Big 12. And Rockies' original general manager, Bob Gephardt. Once we got the Blake Street Bombers together, we had a chance.
0: Subscribe to Drew's Podcast wherever you find podcasts and tell a friend. This is the Drew Goodman Podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is show number 213. The trade deadline has come and gone. And we're going to get into that and uh, other topics because a lot was kind of going on, especially here in the Rocky Mountain region over the last week or so. And I do want to sound off on several of these uh, topics. Let's begin with the trade deadline and specifically how it impacted the Colorado Rockies. The Rockies are a team that is rebuilding. Um, I know that... uh, there were hopes a couple of years ago after 17 and 18 of, of keeping the thing rolling, but that's that, that's a long time ago now. And they don't have enough talent. They have to build up their farm system so that talent emerges and puts a winning product on the field at Coors Field. It's that simple. And the front office went about it the right way. They went out and got pitching. In fact, they've attacked the whole pitching element, which is always going to be the most important part of the sport. And it's always going to be the most difficult aspect for the Rockies um to... Uh, go out and, and acquire because of all of the things that you're aware of. If you're listening to this podcast, I don't have to get on the soapbox and tell you how difficult it is for the Rockies uh, to get pitching because they play at altitude. They're not going to get free agents, that sort of thing. So they, they're on an island as a uh, when you juxtapose them against the other 29 other teams and how they can go out and get talent. Now the Rockies have to do a better job in the draft um, between 2015 and Oh, 2021, uh, there haven't been many guys that have impacted the roster. It's probably a little unfair to talk about 2020, 2021, because it's still recent enough. Those guys are working their way through the minor leagues. But in the mid-late teens, there were some misses. All teams have them, but the Rockies had a lot of them, and you can't afford to. You cannot afford to um, if you want to have a winning product at the major league level. Baseball, like most sports, but in particular with baseball, it's all about depth. You're going to have injuries and what kind of depth do you have, especially, especially when it comes to pitching. So in the draft the last two years, they have drafted not quite exclusively, but in large measure, all pitchers and all college pitchers. And I think that was the right way to go. And so this trade deadline, they went out and they acquired pitching. They traded C.J. Krohn and Randall Gritchick for a couple of uh, interesting prospects with the Angels. Brad Hand to Atlanta for another pitching prospects, prospect. Everybody they moved, they got pitching in return at the minor league level. Now, I'm not naive enough to think, oh yeah, all these guys are going to pitch in the big leagues and, and most of them are going to be impactful big leaguers. That's not how it works. does not work that way. What you hope of the seven minor league pitchers they got back, that a couple impact your major league roster. That's reality. And that's not just reality for the Rockies kind of set the, the bar low. It's the same thing if we're talking about the LA Dodgers, who historically have done a really good job with their farm system. That's how it works. You're going about it from the Rockies' perspective the right way. Go out and get well-thought-of guys that produce numbers in your system. I'm not just talking about ERA numbers. I'm talking about the more you have, the more options you have, and it increases your odds that some of these guys will blossom. And throughout the industry, so you know, when the Rockies were graded on how they performed at this trade deadline, they got really good marks. And the Rockies have done things that have been perplexing around the trade deadline in the recent past to the industry. And this year, the Rockies and, and Billy Schmidt, I think, went about it the absolute right way. Trade expiring contracts, trade guys with some age, and get back what you can. And that's why you saw Gritchik and C.J. Krohn move out the door. It's the right thing to do. And um, so the the process has begun. The Rockies from a farm system are ahead of the curve when it comes to position player talent. And we're seeing some of those guys get opportunities this year. The guys we talked about um, almost on a weekly basis, the Joneses, the Tovars. And now Tolia is up and and we're going to find out, you know, what Tolia is going to be able to do, where he's going to play most every day. Primarily at first base, a little bit in the outfield. He's getting a couple of starts out there on occasion uh, as the DH. So uh, I I give the Rockies solid marks for all the moves they made and the direction of what they tried to acquire, and that is uh, is pitching around baseball with the trade deadline. Which you know, if you're a baseball nerd, it's fascinating. Justin Verlander moves from the Mets to Houston. And for me, instantaneously, they become a favorite, again, they just won a World Series, so it's not like I was dismissing them in their chances. They're a good team. But, you know, Framber Valdez just threw a no-hitter. They have co-aces in Valdez and Verlander. There's a comfort level. Verlander with Houston, Houston with Verlander. Verlander this year, even the Mets, were, were a disaster. He was pitching well. He had a 3.15 ERA, not as dominant as he was last year when he won a Cy Young in the American League, but still really good. Scherzer... Not as sharp as Max Scherzer's been throughout his Hall of Fame career. Not even quite honestly close to that. But Texas went and got him, you know, good pickup for Texas. What's more interesting is what the Mets didn't do. The the highest salary in the history of baseball, the highest payroll, I should say, in the history of baseball. And they're well under five hundred and they're blowing it up already. And what Steve Cohen has done is he's trying to improve his farm system is utilize his ability to pay down a number of those contracts that he sent away, the two pitchers, the two Hall of Fame pitchers specifically. And because he's paying a majority of the money to Houston and Texas so they can pay those guys, he got back even better prospects in return. He got back... Uh, two top 100 prospects in those trades, and uh, a few others in the moves he made. But I want to go back to the Mets and what a disaster they were this year. It didn't work. And for all of those people out there that always think that if you just throw money at a problem, that uh, instantaneously the problem goes away, or if you throw money at payroll for a team that you instantly are going to become successful. It doesn't work that way. Uh, the, the five highest payrolls in baseball this year—you start at the top. The Mets were number one. Yankees were right in there. Uh, San Diego, Texas—believe it or not—it moved into the top five. There's only one team leading their division, and that was the Texas Rangers, and they're in a dogfight now with Houston. The Mets aren't going to make the playoffs. They spent more than anybody in the history of the game. The Yankees, I don't think, will make the playoffs. The Yankees are not very good. They're in last place in a very good division, albeit the American League East. But uh, they were really quiet uh, during the trade uh, deadline. And that's because Brian Cashman realizes they're not great. And they probably couldn't improve their team enough that they are going to be truly competitive going forward. So these teams that spend money, and the Padres, they I, I think the Padres still may find a way to get in the playoffs, but for all the money they've spent, they have not played well together. I don't get it because they're, some of the underlying metrics suggest still that they are one of the best teams uh, in the National League, um, but they're below 500. as uh, we're concluding uh, a series watching them play the Colorado Rockies. So it's not just about money not just about money. But uh, the trade deadline is always a a fun time. And again, kudos to the Rockies. It was a step that was uh, necessary as they look to rebuild and uh, hopefully it bears fruit going forward a couple of years from now with some of those arms uh, that they did acquire. Got to talk about Sean Payton. Just have to. I didn't get this. And I, I know that we also live in a, an age where, more often than not, it's players, not necessarily coaches, that'll say crazy stuff, right? Well, in the case of Sean Payton, he is talking to Jarrett Bell, longtime and, and respected writer for USA Today, and he went out of his way to bash what transpired last year with the Broncos from the head coach to the president to the GM. He got everybody. Now, he didn't work here. He was not in the building a year ago, but he still felt it necessary to publicly air those guys out. I didn't get that at all. I know some people wanted to spin and go, oh, yeah, there's a new sheriff in town and and uh, you know he's putting everybody on notice. Hold on a second. You just don't do things that way. And the next day, Sean Payton tried to walk it back a bit, but Aaron Rodgers had already formulated his opinion.
1: It made me feel bad that someone who's accomplished a lot in the league is that insecure that they have to take another man down to set themselves up for some sort of easy fall if it doesn't go well for that team this year. thought it was way out of line and appropriate and I think he needs to keep uh, my coach's names out of his mouth.
0: Aaron Rodgers went straight Will Smith on Sean Payton. Again, I don't get it. It's like football one-on-one. It's sports one-on-one. Do not give your opponent bulletin board material. Lou Holtz was the best at not doing that. I mean, he, he could make, you know, the Little Sisters of the Poor sound like Bear Bryant was coaching him and they were the Alabama Crimson Tide. You don't give the opponent bulletin board material. And you certainly don't throw under the bus people who played for Nathaniel Hackett a year ago, people who were in various roles of management and executives. It just made zero sense. And honestly, I like what Nathaniel Hackett said. He broke the code. It's one of those things that there's a code, there's a way things are done in that house. And, you know, this past week, it's frustrating and it sucks, but uh, we're all susceptible to it. Sean Payton broke the code. You don't you don't rip other coaches. If he didn't respect what happened with the prior regime, fine. I I'm sure there's a whole lot of that that, that happens and, and is thought of. Keep it behind closed doors. It served no purpose for Payton to rip Nathaniel Hackett. And the and I, I really didn't get Him getting after people he's working with in his own building. How uncomfortable is that the next morning? And you also set yourself up. And I know he's been a very successful coach. But you set yourself up for a whole lot of criticism if things don't go swimmingly well this year in the fall. I mean, you have basically lit a stick of dynamite under your own feet. And also... When the Jets and Broncos play in week five, the Jets, again, would have more motivation seemingly than the Broncos. Not that players should have less motivation week to week, but you know where I'm going with this. Because the Jets will rally behind Nathaniel Hackett. He was the one that was slighted. And if anything, the Broncos are like, well, our coach wasn't slighted and maybe he was slighting us to a certain degree. It's going to be interesting how this whole thing shakes out. I also have a problem with the guy that fancies themselves the smartest guy in the room. It's not a good look. Having said all that, I'm really happy that Sean Payton's a coach. I think it was a really good hire. I think Sean Payton you know, is a proven commodity. I think if you are going to get the most out of the twilight years of Russell Wilson's career and resurrect him, then it was, again, a good hire. But the opening of camp and, and the soapbox that he got on in that article with, uh, with Jared Bell at USA Today was odd. As I said, it was classless. It served no purpose because it's not like everybody's going to come running out of the locker room. Man, we're going to run through a wall now. He he just ripped everybody in the room. We know who the sheriff is. It's it, it just, it, it was pointless. Moving on and staying in football primarily, the University of Colorado last week announced that they are going back to their roots. They're heading back to the Big 12. This was not a huge surprise. The Pac-12... Is dying. I think I I put out on social media that, uh, you know, in the church of the Pac 12, they're playing amazing grace right now. USC and UCLA left. Colorado leaving at face value is not anywhere close to the impact of losing the two Los Angeles schools to the Pac 12. They carried the freight. For years and years, and you go back when they were the Pac-8, whenever I thought of as a New York kid, the Pac-8, and then ultimately the Pac-10, the first schools you thought of were USC and UCLA. USC in football, typically UCLA in basketball. And yes, you could name the other schools, the Arizona schools and the Oregon schools and the Washington schools and Stanford because... They were one of the premier academic institutions uh, in the world. And as you learned later on, they they were great in all sports, the Olympic sports in particular. But that conference was about USC and UCLA. And yes, the, the, the television times were later, and we'll touch on that again in a moment. But once they left for the Big Ten, there's so much blame to go around that they didn't have the vision to realize that the super conferences were coming, that the three other power five conferences were already in catch up mode when it came to the SEC and the Big Ten and securing large dollar figures from television entities. The Big Ten swooped in in this new age and they got SC and UCLA so they can compete financially with the SEC in terms of those dollars. And everyone else is, is playing second fiddle. The Big 12 was smart enough, even though they recently lost Texas and Oklahoma, to go out and expand quickly. And also, you w- within this, and this is an important note, you have to have a vision and not just take the name schools that we've associated for decades with football prominence SC, Oklahoma, Texas, you know, in in the established conferences of the SEC, Alabama and Georgia and LSU, the Big Ten, Ohio State, Michigan carrying the torch there. They went out and they identified a school like TCU that had aspirations, had an internal setup that you could see becoming... A national power and sustaining it in football, and TCU's done that. They just played in the national championship game. They have a good basketball program. So now TCU has moved up a couple of notches, and they are one of the named schools in a revamped Big Twelve. You know, and in the, in the Big Twelve is bringing in other schools. They're bringing in Houston a school with good basketball tradition and and has had their moments more recently in football. The Pac-12 and the presidents, it's almost like they sat back and said, we're the Pac-12, we're elite academically, and we don't have to partake in any of this. And now you have a conference that I'm not sure and you're not sure is going to be around. Who on earth or what television entity is going to pour a ton of dollars toward the Pac-12 right now, because if you're Oregon, if you are Washington, you're looking around and saying, all right, will the Big Ten offer us something? Who else is out there? Because the LA schools are gone. Colorado was really shrewd. They were really smart. They did what was best for them. They saw the writing on the wall, and I know Colorado has been awful in football. But now there was some sex appeal because of Deion Sanders. And Colorado's taking advantage of that. The Big 12 wanted the Denver market. They continued to expand. They're being proactive. It was the absolute right move for Colorado to move back to the Big 12. But I will caution you with this. And this has nothing to do with what conference they're in and everything to do with where they are right now as a football program. They are taking advantage, and well they should, understand that, of Deion Sanders being in Boulder. They have this golden ticket, but the golden ticket may have an expiration date on it. I hope it does not, but work with me for a moment. They've gotten more attention talking about the University of Colorado in the last eight months than maybe any school in the country. They're coming off a one win season. We've never seen anything like this, maybe in the history of college football. There's this this prime time Dion fascination, and I'm part of it. I'm all in. And he's flipped the entire roster over because the rules are different than they were just a few years ago. He literally has like an 80% new roster. But the one thing I am concerned about, and I want to see it be super successful as most of you do. But the one thing I'm concerned about, if a year, especially if it's two years from now, We're still talking about a Colorado football team that's won three games and then won four games, and it's not ramping up as expeditiously as the fan base would like. And then Dion's looked upon differently with 18-year-old recruits with transfers, because ultimately you can't keep going in the transfer portal. That can't be how you're going to go about your business every year. At some point in time... And in the not-too-distant future, you have to recruit high school kids and sprinkle in transfers. It's not sustainable to just always play the transfer portal. And my point is that Dion is really sexy right now. He can get in any home in America, which was not the case for Carl Durrell. It was not the case probably even for Mel Tucker, even though he was only here for 10 minutes. Prime can get in every five-star recruit's house. But two years from now, if they haven't won, that could change. The bloom could be off the rose because you start to ask, and coaches will, will do this, and they're probably doing it right now and recruiting against Colorado, what has he done? He won at Jackson State. With all due respect to Jackson State, it is a much different level of football. It probably was much easier again, with his name, to go out and recruit some players that maybe Jackson State would never have been competitive for in the past. And we know there's a couple out there, including his son. And they won a lot of football games very quickly. It's harder to do at the highest level of Division I football. And so then, if you're scrutinized more for what you're doing in terms of coaching and actually winning now maybe you're not getting in those same homes. I hope that doesn't occur, but it's a small window. It is a small window. And that kind of is something that was popping in my mind when we were looking at uh, you know Colorado and, and moving to the Big 12. And this year is going to be tough. The schedule's tough. I don't see Colorado jumping from one win to, to seven wins. Honestly, if they, I I think Vegas, what is it, three and a half wins is the under over and Vegas is rarely wrong. But it's really two years where they have to show a significant ramp forward where you're seeing Colorado truly coming. I don't mean, you know, marginal growth. A lot of pressure on Deion Sanders. And I think by all indications, he's the right guy for the job and he's ignited so much enthusiasm and interest in the program locally, regionally, nationally. But at the end of the day, it's going to come down to what happens on Saturday afternoons. Hey, before I move on from the University of Colorado, did you catch what Dan Lanning, the University of Oregon coach, said about Colorado leaving for the Big 12? Not a big reaction. I mean, I'm trying to remember what what they won. To affect this conference, I don't remember. Do you remember them winning anything? I don't remember them winning anything. Hey, that was ice cold from Dan Lanning. But understandable, because the Buffs haven't won a thing in a long, long time. It further cements what I'm saying. I, again, love that Coach Prime's up there. Um, I I don't love everything he's done. I, I spoke to how I thought that he could have handled on social media his first meeting with the players who he inherited in a better way. Don't throw kids under the bus. This, th- that's not necessary. Completely unnecessary. But you listen to Dan Lanning. What has Colorado done? They haven't done anything. We know that. And we know there's great excitement. And that's awesome. But to reiterate, come Saturday afternoon, you have a small window this year and, and the, you know the first portion of next year to start getting Ws. So it's not just Coach Prime's a great soundbite. Coach Prime, this guy that 18-year-olds read about and can watch video of from a generation and a half ago. It's not just, yeah, he, he's a good recruiter. He actually is a really good coach with a really good staff that wins on Saturday afternoon in major college football. Because you know how quick things can turn the other way. As we always say, the bottom line is winning. Had a chance recently to catch up with the original general manager of the Colorado Rockies. And I've seen Gab Bob Gebhardt, um, periodically. His grandson plays uh, college baseball with uh, one of my boys. So I've seen him uh, there. And I, I would run into Bob periodically when he was uh, still working for the Cardinals, wonderful baseball man, a baseball lifer, former player. Uh, He's had about every role in the industry and started the Colorado Rockies building a roster. And he did it so well that at the time, the Rockies were the fastest expansion team to get to the postseason. They came about, as you know, in 1993. And in 1995, they were in the postseason playing the Atlanta Braves. So uh, a lot to cover and a lot to reminisce about with the original general manager of the Colorado Rockies, Bob Gebhardt. Well, you and I get to visit a little bit because your grandson's playing with my son in in college. So we get there and we commiserate. I'm going to start here before we go talk about you being a general manager and, and all the things you've done in the game. It's hard to watch. Your
1: son, or in this case your grandson, play at times, isn't it? This, big, this game can be cruel. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you, you're hoping, you're praying that they do well, and and whatever they do in the field, you can't do anything about it. They 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 walk to the die, they struck out, or just something. And you're just you're just a parent or a grandparent, and and uh, you, you try to leave them with something positive after the game. Yeah. Is it neat for you that? Uh, that
0: in different capacities, your kids and your grandkids did something in the game?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, he, as, a, as a grandfather, you don't want to push stuff on them. But when they tell you that they really like baseball, that, that, that's pretty good. Feels pretty good. Yeah, but you don't want to, again, I, I tried to stay out of it and not, not get involved in, in overruling the coach or something.
0: Yeah. Oh, I don't want to take you back. The Rockies are starting you get a call. What was the first call that you took where you knew there was significant interest for this organization, if you're starting out, that they wanted you to run it?
1: Well, I'd, I'd interviewed earlier in the year and been offered a job in Detroit. I was interviewed in San Diego, and, and neither one of them were the right uh, the right uh, spot for me to go. And then I got a call at uh, they asked me to fly to Baltimore and interview with uh, John Antonucci and Paul Jatubs. And I was the tenth guy that they had interviewed. And uh, two days later, they told me to fly to Youngstown, Ohio, and visit with Mickey Monas and, and that's when they made me an offer. And, and I, had, I had a little time to think about it, but uh, once they, they trawled me into Youngstown, I knew that if I wanted the job, it was the right thing to do. What?
0: Did you perceive at the time? People have to remember, Rockers hadn't played a game yet. Right. What did you perceive to be your biggest challenges with an expansion team and formulating a roster and then ultimately playing games?
1: Well, uh, you know, Drew, when I left the Twins, we had just won the 91 World Series. I'd been in the parade and all that stuff. And I came into Denver and, and uh, in our temporary offices downtown, and my rental desk. Uh, and I had a whole briefcase full of notes I've taken in the last month since I had accepted the job. And drew I looked down, there were two paper clips laying on my desk. And I did a whole briefcase full of notes, and I said to myself, what the hell have I just done? I left a well-oiled machine, the World Champs, and here we don't have uniforms, we don't have balls, we don't have bats, we don't have stouts, and we don't have any players, so... It was, it was a, truly a 24-7 job to get all this stuff and, and get Don Baylor on board and Stouts. And, and, oh, I just thought for an hour all the things we had to do.
0: I want to talk for a moment about a guy we lost way too soon in, in Groove, as he was known, Don Baylor. What brought you to Donnie to be the inaugural manager?
1: I, you know, I, I, when he played for Boston, I was with Minnesota, and I went out and started him, we, we brought him in. He was a part of the World Series and, and, and hit a home and all that. And then a couple of years later, we hired him to do some part-time uh, uh, coaching with the hitters. And I, and I really noticed how, uh, uh, how attentive he was and, and, and how his heart was in what he was doing. And when he talked to players, uh, he, he was truly a leader. And I'd interviewed 10 people for that manager's job, and, and I finally just said, even though he's not managed one game, that he was the right guy that would be able to deal with young players and, and possibly losing close to 100 games and, and gradually build what we need. So and, he,
0: and, and he was the right guy,
1: wasn't he? He was the right guy, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Not to get too far ahead. But were you shocked by how quickly you guys had success? First, it was the quickest at that time an expansion team had ever gone to the postseason. Three years in, 95, you're in the postseason.
1: Well, once, once we got the Blade Street Bombers together, uh, Don and I thought we had a chance. Just like it is today with Buddy and, and Bill Schmidt, pitching was going to be hard to, hard to do. That's why we always drafted a lot of high school and college pitchers because the turnover is just so great. And it's going to be hard to get free agent pitchers to come in here and pitch in this altitude. And every general manager felt that way. Yeah. The Blake Street Bombers, they've
0: kind of reached, in our parts, the mythical proportions. Did you realize in real time what you had Because there's a reason you were able to get all these guys. I mean, you know, Dante Bichette wasn't super coveted at the time. Galarraga, you knew from Montreal days, I believe. Take us through how it came together, and when you realized upstairs, you're like, wait a second, these guys can do a
1: lot of damage here. Well, the first guy on board was uh, Galarraga. Three days before the expansion draft, I got a call from the agent, and he said, I got a first baseman for you. Of course, I knew Galarraga from Montreal, and and uh, and he'd been traded to St. Louis, and his hitting coach over there was Don Baylor. So I went down I said, Don, uh, I like this guy. If we can afford him, he said, Let's go get him. So he was the first one, and then the second one, uh, we uh, we were going to draft uh, Holmes from Milwaukee, uh, and we wanted Dante Bichette too, but we were afraid Florida would take him because he was from Florida. So the day of the draft, uh, I came in, I was getting my 15th cup of coffee at 8 in the morning, <laughs> 6 in the morning, and, and I ran into Sal Bando, the general manager of Milwaukee. And I said, Sal, we've talked a lot, but what, 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 what do you really need? He said, I need a left-handed power hitter, a DH. I said, what about Kevin Reimer for Texas? He said, that would do it. So I drafted Reimer. He pulled Dante back after the first round and we had Dante Bichette. And Vinny Testia, uh I uh, saw him play with the Atlanta in spring training. Liked him, uh, he wasn't gonna be a shortstop, he didn't, his feet weren't working up. And uh, we took a shot at him, we drafted him. Ellis Burtz uh, uh, went out and saw him play and he, his uh, agent said he'd like to play in Colorado. Fine, we signed him to a four-year deal. And of course, Larry Walker, who I knew from Montreal, and and uh, his agent all and said uh, if he's not offered arbitration by midnight tonight, he's a free agent. And an hour later, we had him signed, and that day he was in spring training. So that, all of a sudden, we had five guys that to, had to really hit the ball out of the ballpark and, and, and knew how to play the game. Uh, Larry Walker, Hall of Famer, uh, as a five-tool player, and he's as good as anybody I've been around. And the rest of the guys just all filled in and were great players. You know, uh,
0: I'll give you another guy that, if not for injuries, and I just saw him um, and, I, and keep in touch with him a little bit, and that's Ellis Burks. If not for injuries, Ellis had Hall of Fame talent. Yes, he did. And he put up really big numbers. For those that are listening right now, go back and look at the back of his baseball card. Go look them up yeah, on Baseball kid. Reference. Ellis Burks was one wow. hell of a player. In every
1: category. Every category. Home runs, stolen bases. You know, when uh, when we knew he might be available as a free agent, I went out and saw him play. And I didn't sit behind home plate where Stouts normally sit. I sat in the outfield because Ellis had had some leg problems. And I wanted to sit out there and watch him, see if he limped or anything, and he was fine. So uh, we got him signed. Yeah. You
0: played, you coached, you've been a front office exec,
1: obviously. What did you derive the most joy from? You know, every every one was a challenge. I enjoyed all of them. And, And I don't think a lot of people can say every day that they worked for 55 years, they enjoyed every day. I enjoyed every day, but to answer your question, uh, I really liked being the farm director in Montreal because we had six teams and you had all the responsibility of all these players. And it was just a challenge always because the major league team needed players and you had to move. So I, I enjoyed. It. There were some great players that you oversaw in that Montreal
0: chain. I mean, tremendous players who, from a tool standpoint, jumps out at you as one or two on that list of guys that you ever scattered as a teenager or a relative teenager?
1: Probably Andre Dawson. And, you know, I was there with Dawson and Timmy Raines and Gary Tarter, three Hall of Famers, but Dawson just did so many things, and he made himself, you know, he ended up with an 80 arm, but when we first signed him, he had about a 45 arm. But he did 100 push-ups or 200 push-ups every night and just really worked at being a better player yeah it couldn't have been a nicer guy oh uh,
0: yeah right yeah pros pro and in, in, in everything he did did you realize gab Well, certainly you realized at what point did you realize man
1: altitude is going to be an enormous issue playing major league baseball here well montreal had a farm team the denver bears so i was in here a lot and i saw balls fly halfway to the moon so, you know, I knew that I had a little head start, and, and when we first hit, came here, we had uh, <clears> the <throat> University of Denver, I think, did a, a, a test, a series of tests, and they found out the ball carries 10% farther. Talking about a 300-foot fly ball, where does that end up? 3.30. At, at, yeah, uh, maybe 10%. it may be in the seats. Yeah. So, you know, we knew that, we, uh, we tried to make the adjustments when we built the ballpark, and... And, uh, you know, the, the, the thing that everybody wants is a fan-friendly part. So they move the, the sidelines in. You know, a lot of balls that uh, end up ten rows up the foul ball. Were they at Dodger Stadium? Out The fly ball, yeah. So all this, you know, the, the, the altitude and the, and the fly ball, the, the way the stadium is in, constructed, it all, it all affects the hitters and the pitchers. Yeah. You draft
0: Todd Helton. What was your first um, memories
1: of Helton when he was at the University of Tennessee? I went to see him play, and I was telling the writers, got a speeding ticket driving to see him, and, <laughs> and uh, I never did get Helton to pay that ticket. But um, Todd also was a was a closer. He was a closer in the team. the hell of a closer. Yeah, and he was a, a very good quarterback until... This guy Peyton Manning came along, and and Todd told me he said, I thought I better start hitting a little bit more. <laughs> uh, but he, uh, he he was good. So we were so smart, Drew. We uh, we signed him fairly quickly. He said, "Let's just send him down to Asheville, right down the road, and get to see his friends and his parents." Uh, the the right field fence in Asheville is about 250 feet, so we that boy Helton's gonna hit a ton. He had 220 at-bats. Do you how many home runs he hit?
0: Uh, I, here's what I remember. Clint Hurdle has a great line that you're aware of from that year because he was just flat burned out. And he calls that the summer of 4-3, to three, as in the
1: summer of a rollover ground ball to second, right? 220 at-bats, hit one home run. And a few years later, he's hitting 49 here in the major leagues. So. Right. Uh-huh.
0: Were you concerned when... when...
1: Yeah. Yeah. We were like, oh, man, we, we missed on this kid. Yep. But Todd told me later on, he said, I was worn out. Football, baseball, training, going to school. He said, I was out of gas. And that's where the four to three. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But one home run.
0: Crazy. In the in this day of Shohei Otani, and I've asked Todd recently, very recently about this, could he have been a, a two-way guy, he wasn't a starting pitcher, but he, could he have been especially a lefty specialist, come off first base, you got two big lefties coming up, could he have done that at the big league level, Kev?
1: You know, do I never saw him pitch. Uh, our scouts saw him, I went in and saw him, and they really liked his bat. They had just potential there. Uh, a quick story, uh, we're in spring training, Don and I are standing on the right field line, and by this time, Yellow Roger was gone, Helton was a rising star, and uh, he came out of the batting cage, and he came over to Don and I. He said, yeah, but I I had a dream last night. And Baylor's looked at me funny. I don't know where this is going. And I said, what was it, Todd? He said, Rockies are in the seventh game of the World Series. They're playing the Yankees. Rockies have a one-run lead. Yankees have the bases loaded. Nobody out. And they got three left-handers up. And he said, uh, Don, you came and dropped me off first base. And I came out and I got the three left-handers out. We won the World Series. And I said to him, I said, you, you still want to pitch? He said, Yeah, yeah, I do. I said, All right. I said, We'll send you down to Asheville this summer. And next year we'll send you to Salem. And that's your trip. He said, oh, hell, never mind. No, <laughs> i I was wondering where you were. I was afraid of where you were going with that, but uh, you know, since since we mentioned
0: that, just being the, the the baseball savant that you are, are you fascinated by Otani?
1: I am. I am. Uh, you know, he's a, he's a an exceptional athlete. There's there's not been one. You've
0: never seen this. Before.
1: No, and and the fact that he'll DH four days and that's day he's a starting pitcher. And how they maneuver that back and forth and and keep him strong yeah. that's the thing you know uh, we we read about um, uh, a position player needs a scheduled day off well they have, they have you know they have days off but anyway he plays every day in, in a key spot yeah. so he's, he's amazing he, he's truly amazing by the way you know what todd said about
0: the pitching aspect, he thought early in his career, in his big league career, he still was crafty enough that he felt like he could, especially get left-handed guys out
1: because you know he'd move his arm slot around and you know, drop and, down. And, and that you, you, you're probably right, uh, but at that time nobody did it. Nobody uh, did it, of course not. But you know, being a left-handed relief pitcher to come in, and, you know what he what he said to Baylor and I about pitching the World Series, uh, I think he meant it. I think he. Oh yeah. Well, I mentioned going back to A-ball to get some innings and he didn't like that. I got one for you that just popped in my head. You've been around so many great players,
0: so many different organizations. Even after you left the Rockies, I mean, you were Jim in Arizona, St. Louis, you were uh, heavily involved. Uh, who's the most competitive player, the most
1: confident player you ever remember being around? Probably Larry Walker when he wanted to play. When the game's on the line, the season's on the line, there wasn't anything he couldn't do. Now, he'd he'd, he'd, he'd take the day off now and then. But, pretty and there's a lot of players. Uh, Andre Dawson was very good. Jerry Carter. You know, just uh, Kirby Puckett in Minnesota was competitive and he always believed in himself and uh, felt that If he played well, the team would play well. He'd bust his butt running the first base on routine drawn balls. And and that, that, you impress your teammates when you play that way.
0: Yeah. When 93 comes around, and finally, after you went and bought baseballs and bats, and and, and got scouts, and, and actually, now it was gonna start for real. I'll leave the, the, the games at Shea Stadium and the opener against Doc and aside, but you arrive at then Mile High Stadium. It's opening day. Did you have any idea what was going to happen when you looked out there and there was over 80,000 folks?
1: Well, it, it, it's funny. Just when I took the job in, uh, in uh, Colorado and, and uh, an old friend of mine that was a longtime ticket salesman with the Twins, he said, what the hell are you doing? Yeah, had nothing in rocks and desert. You won't draw anybody. So well, we're going to try, Jack, Jack Blazy So he calls me in spring training. Well, he said, oh, big boy, how many are you going to draw? I said, well, we're putting some extra seats in. And we're we're going to try to draw 80,000 people. He started laughing. Yeah, I sure you will. So I said, well, call me about 3 o'clock, opening day. So he called, and he said, how many you got? I said, we got 80,222. And there was dead silence on the phone. He said, well, you won't draw anybody tomorrow. The second day is always down a little bit. I said, well, draw me again, about three. So he told me, he said, well, how many you got, big boy? I said, yeah, you're right, Jack, you ten has dropped down. How many you got? I said, 65,000. So, so he, if he finally came out here, he didn't believe me uh, that we could draw this fall. But, you know, we, we showed up. We, we ended up. We're at seventeen thousand short of four and a half million, and then in '94 we were on pace to go over four and a half, and we went on strike, and then we moved into a smaller stadium.
0: That has to be a great source of pride for you. It it is for me in a, in a strange way because it was before I was broadcasting uh, the the Rockies, but I lived here, and I remember, you know, with all due respect to, to Bill White, it, the. Colorado and Denver just blew Major League Baseball away in the National League at that point, and they were almost forced to give us an expansion franchise, and it was a fate to complete that South Florida was going to get one. Oh yeah, baseball in South Florida. And all the attendance records, which really continue today, even as the Rockies have struggled at times, people pour out. That has to give you a sense of pride, doesn't
1: it? Yeah, you know, and and when I took the job, uh, Back in '91, and accepted the job, I knew Denver was a football town. This this was a football city, and now, uh, and Bill White and I sat and talked many times about it. He said you guys got a challenge because it's an established football city, and he said so you got you got to do a lot of things right, and that's that's why we are ushers and and uh, people uh, are are trained to to treat people right and. and and the, the thing we started the, the very first year, of the last day of the season, the players walked around the field. I think they still do that. Uh, but it was a way for uh, for Don and everybody to, to wave and thank the fans for being fans. Yeah. And it's, it's a couple, couple questions, Geb, as I let you go, and it's always great to visit. When you think of your
0: tenure through the 90s here and getting this franchise going in the, in the postseason against Atlanta in 95 and, and three straight winning seasons, which is really hard to do here, as we all know. Uh, what are you most proud of? What, what gives you the fondest memories?
1: You know, and you referred to it a little bit earlier, uh, when we went through all the things, 63 guys in that first spring training in Tucson, and Brent Smith said, hi, my name is little tides on everybody, and you know, but when, when we, uh, we played two exhibition games in Minnesota and we went to New York to face Dwight Gooden and Brett Saber again. Now, how we didn't even know everybody, know, didn't know everybody's names. And, and we went out and competed against them. But when they played the national anthem, uh, and I had our whole baseball staff there, I had tears because of, what we had to do to get everything together and how many people had to work so hard without seeing two and three games a, a day and, and all this busting our tails. Uh, and now here we were in New York facing Dwight Gooden in a major league game for the Colorado Rockies. Pretty special. In Colorado, even though you know, you've
0: moved on, Colorado remains your home, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, we've lived here now 32 years. Uh, and we're not going anywhere. It's great to see you again. That's true. Thanks to uh,
0: to Gab. He's doing great. And it's, as I said, always fun to uh, to visit with him and uh, and to hear some of the old stories and and some of the uh, original tales on how a an organization came to be. And it's amazing that it's 30 plus years uh, later. Uh, We started this uh, chat today or part of the uh, beginning of the conversation was about football and college football And uh, I'd be remiss if I did not mention Colorado State before we get on out of here and where they are. You know, Colorado State was hoping to get a call at one point from the Big 12 when the Big 12 was expanding. And then they were hoping and still are hoping to get a call perhaps from the Pac-12 if the Pac-12 can stay together and rebuild. And I think of where Colorado State is, and instead of being at the top of the food chain when it comes to group of five schools and who would be snagged up by power five conferences, Colorado state has appeal still. They're just an hour North of a major market in Denver. They have had success with some of their other sports, not named football. They've had success in basketball. They should be higher up on the ladder than they are. And they have no one to blame but themselves for not being atop that. Their facilities, and let's talk about football specifically, are terrific. They have a good stadium, a really good stadium in campus uh, stadium. They have, in large measure, power five um, facilities, but they blew it. On the field, they had really good talent. Colorado State was positioned to be at Boise State's level with the group of five in college football. Boise State has had that mantle, the best of the group of five. They had recruited really well under Mike Bobo and I like Mike Bobo. I did a number of his games. I thought he was innovative offensively. I thought they got a little too pretty. I don't think they were real tough. He had really good players. I had a number of coaches in the Mountain West say, Boise State and Colorado State have different players than the most of the rest of us. This was a couple of different coaches in the Mountain West. And they didn't win enough. And then, of course, Urban Meyer ran that whole search party the search committee of one. And he came out with one of his cronies from back east, Steve Adazio, who's always been a 500 coach. The only thing that Steve Adazio did is they were tougher. They ran the ball and were more physical. Other than that, it was a complete mismatch. Head coach, region, university. So next thing you know is a bunch of years have gone by and your pretty stadium and your pretty facilities you did not take advantage of because maybe they'd be sitting in a different position right now with everything that's come down with some of the other conferences in major college football. We'll see moving forward how it shakes out. One thing's guaranteed, each new day comes a new story. We'll do it again in seven days. Hope you enjoyed it. Take care, everybody. Stay safe.